and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. Devin joins me today, and he is over there in Chicago. What are you up to, man? Uh, besides freezing in the cold and chipping ice off of my axles, I've been indoors editing. The only way to spend this kind of time during a blizzard. You got How um, bad is the snow out there? Oh, it's absolutely a mess. It's it's impossible to get anywhere, and there's delays here and there all over line people are being delayed two days from their flights it's quite terrible so i've been inside fighting um premiere uh with multi-camera editing for the most part i've been really i've been enjoying the new features of being able to set up after effects projects as a template so i've been doing a lot of that uh but then in multi-cam editing i'm using avc hd or other raw footage off of like p2 cards and premiere doesn't like it when you're trying to run a lot of those streams at the same time. H.264, it'll cut through. MPEG-2, it doesn't care. ABCHD, it just, it always craps out on me and freezes up, and it's been a mess, but working through it. So are you getting, like, are you setting up shortcut keys so when you're switching with your multicams, you just hit a button really quick? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I've got got the whole, and and the multicam is really easy to use. Their whole audio way of doing the multicam is still a bit, I don't know, fickle, in my opinion, because once it's set up, you can't change it. And I hate that. But in terms of editing, it's super easy to cut and edit. It just comes down to during exports, it really just lags and it sucks and it crashes. And sometimes after enough time of switching, it then just seems to almost run into like a memory overload and just gets all sluggish. And then I can't see in real time what's happening, which negates the whole multi-cam editing. Wow. So is there a way to just do like a proxy file version of that and then apply it? Would that maybe that, fix the problem? That's what I've ended up having to do. I've, and I've ended up just doing ProRes for all those ABCHDs, and that's actually what's gotten me through this project, so I can hit the deadline. Wow. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> Not horrible. the best way to do it. Yeah, you know, Premiere's supposed to be like, ah, oh, you don't need to transcode anything. We'll take care of it, but <laughs> not always. Well, on my end, I just got back from uh, Seattle. I flew into Portland uh, on Friday, and then I had to present a couple projects, and then I rolled over to Seattle to present some more projects, I might have a job coming up for a month and a half (laughs) in uh, Vancouver. So look forward to that, guys. Actually, you probably won't hear much about it, but I might be disappearing (laughs) off and on. So that's what's up with that. And now it is time for the news. Time for the news. First up on the news list here, Panasonic is offering up a bunch of rebates on their current line of cameras. They're offering up to $800 off with the YAGH adapter as well as the <laughs> GH4. I believe I got that letter combination correct. And they are also offering off uh, $200 on the GH4 bodies as well as $100 off on the still-selling GH3. Is this kind of a mm-hmm. sign that we're going to see a GH5 at NAB? And if so, are we going to get a major update or a minor update? Absolutely. I think with the way Panasonic is going, it seems like they have no intention of following in Canon's footsteps with the 500D series of just making small incremental updates as time goes on. Uh, Everything from the GH1 to what we now have the GH4 have been huge improvements. Of course, the question is at what cost? Uh, GH5, by their current marketing, could be what, three grand? Uh, that maybe. starts to fall outside of that starts to fall outside of necessarily, uh, you know, the banging price that they had with the GH3 and the GH4, uh, respectively. But the GH5 definitely seems interesting. Everyone's buzzing around thinking that it's going to do 4K at 60 frames. I I'm not sure that that's likely. If it did, then yeah, this would be a reason to buy one. But 
uh, unless they've got an H.265 or H.265, yeah, H.265 or whatever chip in there, I don't see how they're going to do 4K at a higher frame rate. Well, and there's the rumors at 8K. I don't think they're going to be cramming that into the GH5. No. no. When you uh, look at the upgrade cycle for the GH series, it, the 3 to 2 wasn't a huge jump, but then the 3 to 4 was a big jump, and it was the same with the yeah. 1 to 2. So I'm guessing maybe if they do release a GH5, which is likely since they seem to be on an every-year cycle, when the GH5 yeah. comes out, it'll probably be incremental upgrades, a few corrections, some of the stuff that made people irritated about the GH4. And what I'm really mm-hmm. hoping for is actually an actual battery grip with XLR inputs. Because I know we had the YAGH adapter, but yeah, that didn't that have any power about. source, you know? So <laughs> would it be great if we had like a little chunk that went off of the side of that that just had XLR inputs and ran off of two batteries? Or even one battery, and then you had that all in yeah. one package. And let's not make the price uh, seventeen hundred dollars just for the extra mm-hmm. unit. Let's make it like I don't know two fifty, three hundred dollars, and then you have a great audio adapter, and you have a camera that is really handy to have around. I agree. I think that that is probably what we could expect from a GH five, and I'm pretty sure that we are going to begin a sneak peek at a GH five during NAB. Uh, but like I said, 4K at 60 frames, uh, you know what? Even if they do that at 200 megabit, that I still don't think that's enough data stream to make that useful. You see people that are starting to go, ah, 96 frames per second isn't so great when you only have uh, 100 megabit or whatever yep. it is to try to cram all those frames in there. What is 4K at 60 going to be? Think of the data stream you need for that. It's not... I, if they do it, I don't think it's going to look good because I haven't seen anything that makes me think anyone's putting H.265 chips in their cameras right now. Well, another side note for that is uh, I believe GoPro just released an update for the Hero 4 edition that gives you 240 frames at 720p. And that was the complaint right out of the gate for that is, mm-hmm. man, do those individual frames look mushy. It's just they can't really push a sensor like that uh, that hard, even if the chip's able to input that much information. And then again, you're also limited by Kodaks. And I wouldn't be surprised if the GH5 was just going to use the same sensor as the GH4. I mean, you have limitations when you're coming out with a new product every year. There needs to be a lot of carryover of the same materials, the same things that are tried and tested. Otherwise, you could end up with a flop, so... And this could just be more firmware corrections. There were a few issues in the GH4... Uh, one of the things I found a little bit frustrating is the screen information display that mm-hmm. seems to disappear on you after a little while and touching the screen sometimes, well, one of the things I run into, and I would like to see a fix for this and maybe there is already, I don't know. Uh, but when you close the screen facing inward towards the camera, occasionally the sensing the, the touch screen itself moves the focus point away from where you had selected it originally oh. to the corner. And I've had that happen a number of times where I thought I had set the center focus point and I'm just doing something quick where I want it to be center and then I frame it after that. Well, because it's moved the focus point to the corner of the screen, it screws up what I'm trying to do yeah. and then I have to flip the screen out again and look at it and mess around with it. And, and it's just wasting time. Yeah, and that's not something that's you know into the world, but those sorts of things are features that they could really easily come in and say, okay, the GH5 is a refined version of the GH4. We've fixed this thing, and you know, you've complained so much about this. Here's some new firmware. We've added a few like bells and whistles to make it nice, and then otherwise, it's the same camera, only with better low light performance or a nicer chipset or something like that. 
Yeah, and, but Panasonic has been one to, for the most part, I'd say, uh, listen to what the community has been asking them, except for some reason, ever since, you know, the GH2 and the GH3, everyone's been complaining about a display that disappears on them. I figured by the four, they get that fixed. It doesn't seem that difficult. No, and, and just put a <laughs> setting in the menu somewhere to, to correct that. I, I don't know. Those are just the little minor gripes. I still love my GH4 and I use it quite a bit, so I can't complain too much. Moving on down the line to something I can complain about, though, is the Samsung uh, SSD disappointment. Uh, the A40 Evo, if you guys are familiar with this, this was released about a year and a half ago now. And the controversy was those were great price SSDs, and they were the first to use TLC memory, which is triple level NAND. Uh, normally, the older versions and current versions use MLC, which is multi-level because they're using triple level, they're able to cram more information onto each one of these NAND chips and therefore create a much more affordable SSD. But the issue that came about be to begin with with these 840s is that they were getting read errors when they would try to read data that was on there after six months or so. The levels that were recorded on the SSD were causing read issues that were slowing it down to 50 megs a second. When Samsung released the recent restoration tool, this was supposedly corrected completely for their 840 Evo SSDs. Well, it turns out that after data has been left on those drives for a long period of time again, it's getting stagnant and we're getting read speeds that are dropping out again. What do you think about this? Uh, I think this is a major disappointment, especially from a manufacturer like Samsung. Uh, everyone's always touted uh, how great Samsung is with their SSDs and how it's always a solid buy. And now I'm watching uh, the one terabyte Samsung Evos dropping in price because people keep questioning the quality of the product. It's a real shame. Though I do suppose for some applications, uh, people... Right now is a great time to pick up a Samsung Evo 1 terabyte for like 380, 390 uh, right now going on Amazon. So, but still, it's one of those where that hurts your brand. And it's, I stand by Western Digital for so long on their mechanical drives because they're so fantastic. And they're right up there, I'd say, with uh, the GeForce drives and everything else. Samsung starts breaking into solid states. I want to say, hey, always buy Samsung. You can trust them. And stuff like this makes me start going, eh, don't worry about it. Well, and we were kind of starting to get over that whole fear of SSDs to begin with. For a while there, yeah. everybody was worried about failure rates and the issues mm -hmm. that come along with firmware updates and things like that. And... I thought that was kind of behind us, but now this has popped up and it's a, a big issue. And for those of you who aren't familiar with it, this is basically a time frame for stagnant data. So if you have data on a hard drive or on this SSD for more than about six months, that's when this issue becomes a, a problem. The data goes from read speeds of 500 meg down to 50 meg a second read speeds. And that means editing off of that data is a pain in the butt. Um, if you <laughs> to put it lightly, yeah, exactly. And if you work on large projects and you're constantly moving uh, large amounts of data from your SSD back to spinning drives and vice versa, this probably won't affect you because anything written recently will read just fine from these drives. It's just stuff that's sat there for a long time. And I've been testing this out on my own drives. I have a bunch of these Samsung 840 Evos. I jumped on the bandwagon way early, and mm -hmm. now I'm regretting that a little bit. I didn't use my uh, SSDs for my OS drives. I have other SSDs for that. But these Samsung drives, because the one terabyte drives are so affordable, I put them 
into most of my systems as editing drives. And so for that portion, it's not too bad. But then I have a folder that's just, you know, random notes and stuff like that and downloaded files and stuff that I don't touch very often. And I was just checking that the other day, doing some read tests on it. And sure enough, they're dropping down. I'm getting better mm-hmm. than what they're showing on some of these results at the 50 meg mark, but it's still much slower than I was expecting. And that's really disappointing for mm-hmm. drives that I spent $400 a piece on. Yep. Don't go buy new Samsung drives. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. Any of their triple level cell stuff, it is still experimental. I can't say this enough. I got burned. Don't get burned yourself. Uh, these prices are dropping. The only reason I would get one of these is if you're editing off of them constantly and data is being moved back and forth. If you're not going to do that, then stay away from these because your OS has a lot of stuff that doesn't get written very often. And that can yep. slow things down. Your boot time could go way down and everything else could just be a pain in the butt. Now It's not worth it. <laughs> I'm kind of like <laughs> transitioning very well here with pain in the butt items. Uh, Canon <laughs> has officially released the dreaded 1.3.3 firmware update. Now, Devin, you probably and all firmware. You know a little bit more about this. Go oh, yes. for it, man. I'll leave this one for you. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the big thing is, is we've known for a long time. Hey, there's this custom firmware called Magic Lantern. You can put it on your Canon products, whether it's a T2i 75D, and pull out some extra features out of it. And one of the major things, especially with the 5D Mark III, is being able to shoot RAW with it, a uh, RAW video that is. And no one, uh, you know, this is something that's made people look back at the 5D Mark III and go, "Hey, you know what? This is cool. It, it may not be totally functional or anything, but look at the price and look at what I can do with it." And it kind of gets the mindset, too, that, hey, this is something that can update and change faster than the manufacturer is doing it. But now Canon has come out and said, hey, we're coming up with a firmware update. It's going to fix some of those issues you complain about, and we're going to stop you from rolling back firmware. We're going to stop you from loading your own hacks. And I definitely think this is a poor uh, – well, I think everyone agrees this would be a poor move for Canon. I think Canon's trying to do it because they go, if you want higher quality video, you need to go to our other products. We have a bunch of very nice, very expensive products that we're coming out with for video people. And I think they're trying to work people away from necessarily looking at the 5D as a video item just for their sales, just for the fact that I think the 5D is right around that point where they make a decent amount of money on it, but they're not making all that money that they make off of, say, their C-series. So for those kind of reasons, I feel like they're trying to push people towards hey, this is a cool starter camera, but if you want to get professional, you want to get those features, go toward their other equipment. I'm sure, too, also it's business. Uh, You get people calling in saying, hey, I'm having problems with my firmware, and they've loaded custom firmware. Now you're paying employees to help customers who are voiding their warranty. And that's always, you know, uh, cost savings that you have to consider when you're running a business. Now I'm looking through the updates for this three or 1.3.3, and it's not impressive at all. Uh, number one, no. <laughs> they improved the AF controllability when shooting in live mode. Great. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. number two, they corrected some misspellings in the English to Russian menu screens. Wow. Mm-hmm. So this is not anything that Canon was just on the edge of the fence waiting to release some kind of great thing that's going to really help people. Instead, this yeah. is just another one of their somewhat ridiculous tiny updates that you know fixes a menu screen or yep. fixes an AF point or something like that. And now they're locking you out of Magic Lantern. And they're, Lantern. Sneaking, they're sneaking in this little, hey, we want you to stop voiding our warranty. I think 
I don't, I haven't heard of anyone trying this yet. It's going to be interesting to see if you try to flash a younger firmware, if that's possible to try to do it, if it just stops you, uh, it depends on how they implement it or if it actually, you get a corrupt camera. Because if you do just by accident, you could have some people who are just kind of rushing through the process. They're not reading all the details, bricking their cameras. And now you've got a lot of unhappy customers that before were Canon customers, you know, they spent a lot of money in your product. So We'll see how this pays out for Canon, but I don't know. Just like Panasonic, they didn't care when people hacked the GH2, and not that they had many openings for the GH3 to be hacked, but I'm sure Canon or Panasonic wouldn't care either because they go, you know what? As long as we don't have to pay to support you guys, do whatever you want to do. It's your hardware. Canon, on the other hand, of course, they have an agenda. That's because they have another line. Panasonic right now, they don't have an AF300 or something like that. You know. Now, wasn't uh, Panasonic... Uh, known for encoding their later versions of the firmware so that you actually had to decrypt them in order to <laughs> to get a hold of the uh, firmware itself. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm trying to remember no, back. No, no. I thought there I was mean, some sort of decryption that had to go on after, because when the hacks started coming out, they're like, wait a minute, and then they started releasing yeah. protected firmware so that you can't get in and actually look at the code and change things. Is that Was that wrong, right. or is that how they... No, no, no. You're absolutely right about that. It, it's one of those things, though, that people figured it out, and no one ever bothered their, to fix it well and no one ever break their gh2s uh by uh doing firmware updates that's what i'm saying if somebody goes to update their canon or roll back the firmware on their canon and it bricks their camera uh then this is totally a bad move and it's going to result in a lot of unhappy customers who you know they should know better they know they're experimenting they know they're avoiding warranty but still you're gonna have unhappy customers this firmware is on the tails of all of the rumors for the friday 6th announcement which is this week of canon's new camera lineup we're looking mm-hmm. at possibly 5ds a new 5d mark IV variant as well as some new bodies in the ESM lineup, which is interesting. I don't think that's really been messed around (laughs) with for a few years now. Uh, Most of these rumors are coming from CanonRumors.com, and they seem to point to a 50-megapixel sensor in the 5DS, as well as a possible cinema line for the 5D Mark IV. Uh, They did this with the 1DC, where they basically split the camera into two different versions, one for photography and one for video. And they did offer up 4K video in the cinema version. Now, Mm -hmm. what I'm wondering with this, Canon is basically known for going to their higher line and bringing down a feature in the next generation of the lower models. So Mm -hmm. what you see in the 5D Mark II to Mark III is that they brought the autofocus system from the 1D series to the 5D series. Now we're one generation beyond in the 5D series, what do you think? You think they're going to add the cinema features that they added to the 1DC? Are we going to get the amazing motion JPEG 4K recording (laughs) that's in the 1DC? Uh, I think that is probably likely. Right now, uh, Canon still wants something that's going to say, hey, look at us. Uh, We're still the head of indie filmmaking. Um, Because let's face it, for the past year and a half, they've kind of lost that title. It's gone to people running uh, GH cameras. Black Magic has stolen a lot of thunder from them. And I'm sure that they're trying to grab whatever they can to keep uh, the 5Ds relevant because they were flying off the shelves when young filmmakers were going, hey, I can use whatever glass I want. So I... It, I wouldn't be surprised if it was 4K. Once again, that question is, is even the 5D Mark III, the bit rate isn't 
crazy. So if it does 4K, will it have an appropriate bit rate to match it? You know, like you said, motion JPEG, how is that going to work? So uh, it's definitely interesting. But I think, yeah, they're definitely going to bring some new video feature down just to make it look like, hey, we're trying to help you guys out. We're the good guys here. Now, I haven't shot with the uh, 1DC. Do you know if the motion JPEG also includes an audio stream or is that something that you have to record separately? I have never heard of anyone actually recording audio while they've done 4K on that camera. I've always heard of them handling it externally. So I actually don't have that information. That was my thought. You know, I remember reading about it and the 1DC never really popped up on my radar as a camera. I was like, oh, man, I really need to buy this, especially at its original retail price of what? twelve thousand dollars or something of that nature i think it's down didn't they just drop it four thousand or five thousand dollars Four thousand dollars yeah if you really want a one dc now's the time yeah they're they're (laughs) under ten thousand dollars now so used car that's really nice or a one dc which one do you want (laughs) but uh yeah that was one of the things a motion jpeg is no audio so then what do you do well now you're syncing up audio and you're going back to the old school days of you know a clapper and lining up your audio and post that's and something with an H4N or whatever else. Oh, man. And, and that's something I really operation. want to get away away from. You know, when DSLRs first became a thing back in the early days, you know, you had cameras like the 7D where you couldn't really do audio internally. So then you were messing around mm-hmm. with like syncing audio and all that stuff because you had no way to control the levels in the camera. I don't know that this is going to make anybody happy if you're able to shoot 4K, especially with all the other 4K options. I mean, right now... You have the GH4, you have Sony Mm -hmm. offering external recording for 4K, you have cameras that are in the same price range as the 1DC that record 4K. I mean, we're talking about the FS series from uh, Sony, also uh, JVC just released that uh, uh, four-thirds camera that's also 4K, and that's a a full-fledged video camera. I mean, there's so many other options that are 4K internal recording with audio, no issues. What would make the 1DC or a 5D Mark IV cinema version an attractive option to people? I mean, it's not the price. I think I think it's uh, – I mean, for photographers, this is a great opportunity. But for videographers, I don't think there's much there for them. And I think this is in direct response that they're probably going to announce uh, you know, that they're going to come out with one of these cameras soon, and they need these things off the shelves. So a drastic price cut like that, though, is definitely upsetting people who have just gone on board with buying the camera because <laughs> they haven't been doing a steady price decrease. You know, like everyone else, like Panasonic with their GH4 line, you've seen how that price, you know, every once in a while goes down a hundred, then another hundred. And so, and it's been a smooth rollout. And then here, Canon, but you know, we don't know what the markup is. So it could just be that they wouldn't crap. We need to start moving units, just sell it at cost or something like that. Well, I'm looking online right now. I just, I'm curious at what the GH4 is running at. And on Amazon, you can get some warehouse deals for uh, $1,199. So 1200 bucks. So that's same three. price as a GH3 brand new. Yeah, right exactly. There. So there's 4K internal recording. You get audio in and you get all the other features that are pretty nice with the Micro Four Third system. And you could buy an entire lens set. And I'm talking premium glass, all of those Voigtlander <laughs> F0.95 lenses and still have room for a little bit of good stuff in your budget. And you're underneath the $8,000 price tag of a 1DC. Yep. Uh, the Motion JPEG, one of the things that they were pushing last year at NAB for Motion JPEG on the 1DC was that photographers could just 
hold their trigger and yeah. capture, you know, 30 frames a second or 29.97, whatever, of their model moving around. And then they could scroll through those motion JPEG images, pick an image out. And because the resolution was high enough, they were able to just immediately mm-hmm. print off stills from that. Now, that is JPEG right. and not raw. So, I mean, there's that issue. And then there's the whole, like, well, are you good enough at your job that you can just take one shot? Do you really need, you know, 30 frames of, of images a second in order to get the right still? Maybe right. for sports and stuff like that, if you have somebody diving off of a board, of course, having high frame rates is good. But they were mm-hmm. demonstrating it in almost a studio setting where they would just have someone standing around and moving a little bit and making a few different faces. And then they're like, look at this. We got this great shot. <laughs> it's, I don't well, know. Now that- and and now that you mention it like that, I I see a position for it with uh I mean with the quality being there and everything else, possibly visual effects because having that motion JPEG and having that crispness, That's if true. you want to do uh slow mo because like a lot of things too, if you're using a Twixter plugin or something like that, the temporal uh, compression that we get from H.264 and all these codecs, uh you know the the slow mo just doesn't handle well, pixel motion doesn't handle it well, and so things like that, I can also think of you know just for certain scenes certain shots and stuff like that or anything that you need a roto brush and you need that high detail but you're right it's like well really what's the point because if you're out if you're a shooter there's so many better options on the table for you right now and it feels like now it was just kind of a marketing gimmick just to be like we're the first small form factor 4k camera and everyone went that's too expensive i'll just buy a real 4k camera (laughs) (laughs) now one other thing to mention guys is that the uh Firmware update for the 5D Mark III, which basically disables Magic Lantern, may also be a way for Canon to push you into the 5D Mark IV. Uh, If the 5D Mark IV is priced at a similar price range, about, what, $3,000, I think was the initial, or $3,400, something like that, was the initial release for the 5D Mark III. So if they release a camera at $2,900 or $3,000, and they say, okay, look, well, you can't do all those things that you could with Magic Lantern on this old one. But now, look, we've had great audio level meters. We've added focus peaking, all these things that Magic Lantern was only doing, like, mediocre. Now you should move to this new camera, and maybe that's it. Maybe the ploy is firmware update to bring you up to the next level of camera and still keep you kind of in that same section of DSLR shooting. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm probably speculating too much here, but <laughs> maybe a little too much. Maybe a little too much rumor mill today. But <laughs> oh man! All right, not a rumor is actually the Panasonic seven to fourteen f four lens. I've been really missing the wide angle form factor in my GH four micro four thirds lineup. Two X crop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's hard. It's hard, and you know, you don't really think about how much you use a wide angle lens until you don't have it. And then you're like, man, I wish I could go a little bit, a little bit wider, you know? And, Mm -hmm. and now I, I honestly, I was holding out the Olympus, uh, seven to 14 millimeter F two eight is supposed to be released sometime at the beginning of this year or the end of last year. And I was waiting on that lens to be released to to move to a wide angle lens for the micro four thirds format. But Mm -hmm. after a while I just got, got to be too much. And honestly, I found the Panasonic seven to 14 for $500 used on eBay. And mm-hmm. that's a very attractive price for a wide angle lens like this. 
a wide angle it. zoom. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Got it in. And that's equivalent to what, about a 14 to 28 at a two crop factor for, for photos. And then if you're just shooting 4k, what it's 2.3. So that puts you at about 16 to 30 millimeters or 35 ish yeah. millimeters. So then you're basically getting the same field of view as you would enjoy out of the 16 to 35 on a full frame camera. And you don't really need anything wider than a 14 on the GH4 and GH3. It's, you know, it, it gets you wide enough and anything wider than that's going to be so distorted that in post you're not going to be able to fix much. Well, you could, there are some arguments for extreme wide angle uh, occasionally because <laughs> I was talking to somebody the other day. They're like, would you even use a wide angle lens for filming? I'm like, are you kidding me? Okay, when we're in a room <laughs> and I need to get an establishing shot and the room's only 10 foot by, you know, 8 foot and it's yeah. tiny – I have all these people standing around and I need to get them all in frame to establish that they're there before I start doing individual shots and mediums mm-hmm. and all that. This lens works great for that. You know, you do a little bit of distortion correction in post. And even if it's mm-hmm. not quite corrected, people kind of like the thinning look that they get out of that sort of uh, true image shape and size. And then what happens when you need to do a first person perspective shot? You know, there's always the obligatory, I'm looking into my refrigerator and I need a shot from the sandwich's (laughs) point of view. Or, you know, you have the like dog running through the room and then you want to get the shot uh, Mm -hmm. from the dog's perspective. You immediately go to a ultra wide angle lens like this. And sometimes actually I could say, maybe I really just want to go extreme and make (laughs) it look like a security camera. But you're right. For most things, the 17 to 14 is a great range for the GH4. And I imagine, yeah, that 7mm on the GH4, you're going to be able to get your Scorsese shot in the trunk of a car. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm it's, I'm looking on Amazon right now, and it looks like uh, they have some warehouse deals on that, too. Uh, 700 bucks used and uh, recertified. And then on eBay, they're still running $500, $600. That's about, what, $500 under their original retail. I think it, this was $1,100 yeah. lens when it first came out. So... And- might be worth despite checking out. Despite the F4, despite the F4 too, this is also a great lens to pop on the um, uh, Blackmagic Pocket if you want to do some street photography or something oh, yeah. like that because then that turns it into a 21 to something, 50-ish, yeah, something around that. So, And uh, for those of you looking for something to fly on one of your uh, gimbal systems, absolutely, this yeah. is a tiny little lens. Because it's F4, they didn't have to make it nearly as bulky as they would have for the F2.8 that's coming from Olympus. So it's a a very petite lens, and then with the GH4 or the pocket camera, you could balance this out, stick it on there, and really, if you're flying a lens on a gimbal system, you're going to want to go wide anyway. That's just what works best for that sort of situation. So this sort of lens, Mm -hmm. 500 bucks, you slap that on there, and bam, you're in a good spot. Man, now I need to go pick one up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before this, the the 24 to... 2.8. Yeah, F2.8 is... That's what I want. And the Olympus, uh, tw- what is it, 12 to 40 millimeters is what I use right now for my main walk-around zoom. And I love the Olympus. Like, I had the Panasonic, mm-hmm. and, and I believe that one was uh, 35 to uh, 12 millimeter. And the Olympus is like 5 millimeters more. It's 40 millimeters. So you get a little bit more reach. But for the most part, the reason I love the Olympus is because it's built really well. That thing's a solid. It's got solid in stops. It's not a fly-by-wire like the Panasonic. It does have the clicking thing, which I'm not a huge fan of. Uh, you see that in like the Tokina wide-angle lenses. But uh, otherwise, the Panasonic feels really solid and well-built, whereas the Panasonic lens, it yeah. felt a little like cheesy. And 
I was thinking that this F4 7 to 14 would be the same way, but it feels a lot better in my hand than the rest of them. Uh, one thing I did run into, though, and a warning for you guys if you go out and buy this right away, is you're not going to be able to put any kind of UV protector filter on there because it's pretty well bowed out. You know, the, the end of the lens element sticks out pretty far. And in fact, the lens cap isn't really even a click-on cap. It's just a, like, uh, inch and a half deep can hood. that just, like, shoves onto the <laughs> end of the hood. The hood's built onto it, so... What are you talking about? Are you saying people go out and shoot without matte boxes uh, and I, ND glass? Oh That's man, ridiculous. You're, I've never heard of such a thing. You're looking at the guy right now. I am I am completely known for never running around with any of those extra <laughs> items attached to my camera. So I don't know. But yeah, this is a sweet lens. Um, I'll have some photos posted that I, I managed to squeeze off while I was running between uh, Seattle and Portland this weekend. And just, you know, hopping at, hopping out at the airport and running up to an open window and taking a picture, uh, you're, I was able to get some really cool shots of the tarmac as well as some waterfalls and some other random stuff. I didn't realize how many things there were to look at driving between Seattle and Portland, but every 15 miles or so, there was some kind of sign for a waterfall or something like that. And those are perfect things to run around and take photos with the uh, 7 to 14. And filming, man, I'm happy to have a wide angle in my GH4 collection again. <laughs> All right, moving on down the line to discussion topics here. One of the things that's kind of going along with this whole rumor mill thing, and, mm-hmm. and that's basically the theme of this podcast here, is Canon's 50 megapixel sensor that's be- being used or possibly being used in the new 5DS. The 50 megapixel sensor was first reported as being a part of Sony's next A7 offering. And a lot of people are saying that the 50 megapixel sensor in the new Canon camera will be a joint venture between Sony and Canon. It looks like they're going to be using that AF dual pixel sensor system on top of Sony's 50 megapixel sensor. This is still speculation, and there isn't any fact to this yet, but this is kind of what people are putting out there. The other thing that could be interesting from this partnership between Sony and Canon is Sony's eight and a quarter, eight and a half megapixel sensor that they use in the A7S. That is a great low light sensor, and it's eight megapixels, it's full frame. What if they split the 5D series up into the same thing they do with Sony, where they have the sensitivity, they have Mm -hmm. the low lights, uh, what's the R stand? I don't even remember what the R stands for Mm -hmm. in the A7R, but they have three Mm -hmm. different levels. One of them's basically for low light, one of them's high megapixel, and the other one has the filter removed, similar to what they do with uh, Nikon's camera with the D8. 810 where they have the one for doing astrophotography that has the ir sensor taken off and a lot of people are suspecting that's going to be what the next round of 5ds is going to offer so what do you think uh would that be a match made in heaven the a7s sensor and a canon 5d body i think so i think it's a little interesting uh if this kind of business thing goes through because uh you know is this a sign that maybe canon learns that it has to uh get with the times that they don't own all the technology in the world because Sony is starting to come up with some amazing cameras. And let's face it, like the a seven S they're flying off the shelves. And you'd think that Canon would almost 
you know, be afraid and want to be even more proprietary with their technology. But them sharing this technology, I think Canon thinks they'll get more out of the deal than Sony will. And I think Sony would just like to have the name that their Sony sensor was in a Canon camera because Sony loves selling sensors all day long. Well, and I'm looking right now just to make sure because I I couldn't remember, but I was pretty sure that uh, Sony sensors were being used in most of Nikon's lineup now. Yeah. And I'm I'm glancing online over at Petapixel and sure enough, they have a list of every Sony sensor being used in a Nikon body. And it goes it goes all the way up to the D7000 series, the D800 series. Man, I didn't realize that Sony had so many sensors in <laughs> Nikon products. It doesn't look like Nikon's really been doing much in the way of their own CMOS sensors for their cameras lately. Honestly, I've been really happy with what they've done with the A7S. And I would love yeah. to see that sort of thing at least on uh, Canon. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I don't want to get rid of all my Canon glass. I have a lot of Canon glass. I would love mm-hmm. for Canon to offer something that was competitive to the A7S so that I don't have to jump ship and, and move completely over. I hate right. buying lenses for multiple camera body systems, and it's just frustrating. So, damn it, Canon. <laughs> move to a low megapixel sensor that's great in low light. And Canon's right. done some good stuff. Uh, they developed the sensor for the C100, which has excellent low light. Well, uh, a lot of claims of excellent low light performance. I never cared for it, but uh, the the point is, is they have the technology there. So maybe a, a partnership between Sony and and Canon could bring about some kind of. Even if we were only able to shoot 1080p, you know that would be great to have what, a four megapixel sensor that could basically see in the dark and yeah. night vision, you know, I, I would pay for basically that. night vision. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, absolutely. Imagine all just the stuff you could shoot on the streets. And, you know, if you're doing a lot of guerrilla filmmaking and stuff like that, it just opens up the door on what's possible. Well, the A7S, I slap a 50 millimeter F1.4 on there and uh, wander around the streets and it's <laughs> like nothing stops you. What's that? You need a light? Oh, just get your cell phone out and hang it up in the air a little <laughs> bit off to the side. You know, it's it's that yeah. much of a low light beast that lighters or anything else you have around the smallest light source is more than enough to take care of things. I I enjoy that immensely. I would like to see the AF systems catch up with the low light performance of the sensor, but I think in the next two or three generations that'll happen and. We'll start seeing AF systems that are phenomenal in low light capabilities setups like that. Now, looking down the line here, uh, one more thing to cover, which is basically Olympus. They have a thing (laughs) they're calling high resolution shot mode. You know mm-hmm. anything about this at all? Because I'm kind of like... Absolutely. I've been fascinated with this. I've actually been watching uh, the patents for this get filed, I want to say, maybe two years ago. I'm not so sure. Um, but so how do you get more resolution out of a sensor? Just more resolution in your images in general. And there's two ways of going about it is that you can increase how many pixels you've got. And keep in mind, though, that we're talking about hardware-level pixels. We aren't talking about the pixels you see in Photoshop, but we're talking about the fact that on your camera sensor, each pixel only picks up one color, and it combines those, and it has an algorithm, and it does a pretty good job of it. Olympus here says, hey, uh, in order to increase our resolution without going in higher resolution, uh, we're going to actually shake the sensor, per se, in uh, four different directions and take a couple of shots. And what this does is it allows that one hardware pixel that say it only picks up red, 
it's going to move over to where the green pixel was and see how much red hit that part of the uh, pixel that was there before it. So what it does is it kind of it, it kind of eliminates um, the problem we have with um, uh, aliasing and other things like that. And I know you don't see aliasing in photos ever, but realistically there is aliasing because if you printed out the image as it was, you wouldn't see a colored pixel. You would see a red, a green, or a blue pixel in different brightnesses. So there's an algorithm that puts it all together and makes it all look pretty for us. But the fact of the matter is, is that that's not perfect uh, because we aren't seeing that exact space, that little ray of light, what color that ray of light actually is. We're just combining surrounding rays of light. So Olympus, this is a cheap and easy way to do this, and it allows them to... It's a little bit, you're right, you need a tripod in order to use it because it's actually going to do sequential shots and combine them. And that doesn't make it totally practical for a lot of photographers. But you can see in the images that it produces, it attests to itself how much resolution you can pull out when you're doing still life or still photography, landscapes, things like that. Uh, How fast of a capture is this? Do you know? I mean, uh, are they just using their burst mode and then their image stabilization system to shift the sensor around? Is, Is that what's going on? I believe it's their internal stabilization system. I think they've built it in a way that they can control it and shift it by, uh, you know, half of a pixel and move it around. But it moves around in four directions. It basically does a little box dance. And so each pixel gets to move to another spot and analyze how what color that light is in that exact spot. So you actually have, even though you have a, like a lower res photo, you're actually producing a higher quality image out of a lower res photos, which is something we aren't accustomed to. And that's why the photos that pop out of it look so amazing considering their resolution. They look like they're downsampled almost. And that's why they say an effectiveness of 40 megapixels or 63 megapixels, because it's like a 63 megapixel downsampled. So, huh. Um, what, uh, are there a lot of people that are out there just jonesing for this? Cause I mean, I no, see it and I'm no, like, okay, this might be cool if I'm just doing something really weird where I just need a massive still of some, you know, uh, landscape or, or a product, I suppose. But otherwise mm-hmm. those are the only things I could think of. And really, if you're doing product stuff now that it seems like uh 40 megapixel and 50, 50 megapixel, megapixel. Yeah. Then, yeah. Like the Canon. Then do we, do we need a small, you know, sensor camera that will do this weird trickery? Chances are not really. I think it's a way for them to add value to a product. Um, and it's clever and it's interesting. Uh, but like you said, the usability is limited compared to just getting a bigger uh, sensor. But I guess for people I don't know how their low light's going to work with this. Yeah. Um, so if their lower megapixel sensor produces really good low light and it has the super high frame rate mode, you can kind of maybe get the best of both worlds of getting a high, a relatively high megapixel kind of image when you need, when something's still, or you can get a lower one. I think until this gets smart enough that it can kind of do handheld, which would be a weird algorithm. You'd have to incorporate. You probably end up with the magic disappearing <laughs> arms and things like that that you do when you're doing kind of panoramic yeah. shots, you know? No, but I think this is Olympus fighting Panasonic because uh, Panasonic uh, probably about a year ago set up a patent for doing uh, – like I described before, each hardware pixel is picking up a certain piece of light. And the problem is it goes through a filter. It has a red filter. So it's losing some of that brightness that's supposed to hit the pixel. And 
So Panasonic, not that they have done anything with it as far as we know, it's all in secret, but they have filed a patent that instead of using filters over every pixel, they're actually using prisms. So it'll split the light and allow the full brightness of that color to hit certain pixels. Now, how do you incorporate this on a microscopic level and build it? It sounds insane, but the idea is, is that every group of pixels would have a prism instead of having uh, colored filters. So it would produce better low light images because the sensor's naturally getting more light. Uh, now, so correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the prism system actually kind of a bubble that they've created on each of those sensor points? Cause if I remember reading the uh, tech article correctly, they had created some kind of almost magnification bubble of glass mm-hmm. over the top of each individual pixel And I don't know what method they use. I mean, this is getting into the crazy manufacturing (laughs) techniques, but that bubble was what I was actually dividing the light and causing it to hit at a different angle of refraction on the sensor Mm -hmm. and allowing the sensor to read different colors from the angle of refraction because it's dividing the light up similar to a prism. Is that right or am I? That is that is similar, but uh, as far as I understood it, it's still having filters above the sensor because of the fact that the prism isn't isolating the frequencies that are passing through it. Okay. So Panasonic's patent is supposed to be completely filterless, where the entire array is just set up with prisms that are selectively only sending those frequencies to those pixels. So who knows if it's even really physically possible or marketable or even practical for consumers but like this is exciting because they're exploring physics to try to get better higher quality images now i'm gonna throw one more thing out there couldn't this problem be solved by just moving to ccd because i mean (laughs) now you have three different layers capturing only their specific color and then you got all the vibrance that you need because guess what that only captures the red channel and that only captures the blue channel and so on CCD, CCCD uh, images, like that was their like selling point yeah. back in the day was like, look at us, we can do all three colors, you know. And then CMOS came along and was like, well, we're going to interpolate and use these uh, special algorithms to do it. So wouldn't that no, be you're, the you're solution? Right. You're right. But remember that this is all technology concerning stills. And if it's video, that's different because okay. when you add a giant prism and you add three sensors, you're adding size. And I think that unless you're going to have a really large camera, you're not going to be able to fit a prism, one prism that's breaking into those three channels. That's why Panasonic is trying to work on tiny microscopic individual prisms to try to do that job. So it's kind of becoming the same thing. And you're like, yeah, why not do CCD? Because, heck, we all love a global (laughs) shutter. But, of course, you know, CMOS is better in low light and the color that you get out of a CMOS is better, too. So people are just trying to find ways to bring that sharpness into CMOS so that, you know, nobody cares about CCD anymore because we figure out how to make a CMOS better. I don't know, man. I think in the future (laughs) they might start coming back. It's always been back and forth between CMOS and CCD. They've bounced one time it's ahead and the next time the other one comes up with a better way to make something work. I think we're up for a renewal of CCD technology (laughs) where that becomes the next thing. I could be wrong, though. One other thing, though, is that we are limited, especially with the Olympus, they're limited in the resolution by the size of the sensor itself because Mm -hmm. it's micro four thirds. So what do you do? You can't go crazy on the megapixel without just destroying its little light performance. So is this kind of just to kind of limp along in the megapixel race without completely destroying the camera? And yeah, I think I think that that's a good point. I think that this does seem to be a bit of marketing because like we've discussed 
on a tripod all the time. That's not practical. I don't know of many shooters who are on tripods. There's there's shooters who do it. There's shooters who do landscapes and hey, I'm doing a landscape. I'll go ahead and use the high resolution mode. And that's cool. But there's nobody who's going to be like, I need to get this camera because it has this feature and this feature is going to help my job. Yeah. I don't see a lot of people just standing on the edge of their seat waiting for this. <laughs> Wait, I got 60 megapixels. Great. You know, honestly, they're probably going to go get some other camera that is capable of doing that in one shot as opposed to uh, eight or a dozen shots. One more thing. But I this just could be oh, the, this could be real quick. This could be just the birth of Olympus with innovating some new technologies. I mean, we may laugh at it now, but they may figure out a system that works while it's handheld. They may figure out a system that works at one thousandth of a shutter. Yeah. If they figure that out, then no one's laughing because they've added all this resolution in a smaller sensor uh, without affecting low light performance and things like that. And that could be a win. So this could just be Olympus slowly rolling out their R&D. And it's good to see a company like Olympus still doing R&D, still pushing the boundaries of what's possible. Well, and they've done some really cool stuff, too, with their four axis image stabilization in the sensor. Mm -hmm. I've been really excited about some of that, whereas in the past I hadn't really paid much attention to Olympus cameras in general. But when you see the results mm-hmm. of some of that stabilization, and now they're using that stabilization in such a, a fast manner. The only thing I will say, though, with the shutter speed comment is that moving a sensor around fast enough <laughs> to do that, I mean, there's a limit in mass versus motor power versus <laughs> the sensor itself that it could become very complex mm. and convoluted to make that move in such a way that you could do it handheld. Mm. It might be possible in... I don't want to say it's not possible because I haven't studied it in depth, but man, motors moving around a device fast enough to keep up with your hand and to take images that aren't blurred from the sheer movement of the sensor back and forth on those little gimbals. Remember, your eye does it all the time. Your eye is constantly moving. It's never yeah. static. If you watch slow-mo footage, your eye is kind of using the same technique to make up for its shortcomings. So it's it's interesting in theory. Only time will tell if it's actually practical. Well, and there might be some crazy method of a floating magnetic coupling or something like that that they could <laughs> use in order to make it move. So I don't ever want to say impossible, but yeah, it's exactly. cool, man. And this is kind of an interesting thing to geek out on tech with the cameras for, you know. Now, moving on, I just threw this in the list because I noticed that the prices are officially announced. Uh, Tamron, we talked about this in an earlier podcast, had announced their 15 to 35 millimeter F2.8 full frame lens. And I'm kind of excited about it. I love my 16 to 35, wouldn't mind a 15 to 35. And this has uh, Tamron's version of image stabilization, which is uh, vibration control. Mm-hmm. Looks like the price on this guy is going to be uh, 1200 bucks out of the gate. So... Look for it probably in the next six months at eight ninety nine, which is about the same price structure that we saw with this seven, uh, 24 to 70 F2A VC lens earlier last year or the year before. And if that's the case, now basically they have a competing lens structure to go along with Canon's main zooms, their wide angle mm-hmm. and their mid-range zoom. I don't know what Tamron offers right now in the... Uh, 200 to 70 or 80 range. I'm not sure if they have something out that covers that. That's great yet, but man, they've, if this is good, which I think it will be, I bet this will be better than the 16 to 35 Mark one and a little bit less than the Mark two, just like we saw with the 24 to 70, where it was sharper than the original 24 to 70, but a little bit weaker than the 24 to 70 Mark two. What do you think? Are you, 
You excited at all Absolutely. about this? Absolutely. I'm totally excited by this. I think this really shows that, hey, Canon, we're knocking on your door. Uh, you know, we can build some good glass, too. And I think it's, you know, the price, too. So it's a great price for a zoom in this range for people who aren't going to want to be set into maybe Canon L series glass and everything else. Uh, Cause you know, like we talked about the five D and stuff, who knows where a lot of that kind of glasses or uh, a lot of the, those kind of cameras are going and what they're going to do. I just like the fact that uh, there's somebody out there that says, Hey, we can put our glass on your camera. It'll look great. And we can do it. That's affordable for people who want to buy gear and not rent gear all the time. You know, because the only people I really see walking around with L glass are people who either like own uh, red dragon sensors on their red epics or whatever, or they're professional sports photographers. It's pretty much the only people I see who ever buy Canon glass. So, hey, now (laughs) I own almost all of the Canon red striped lenses, especially their prime. So I'm guilty of of ownership there i film <laughs> on them all the time lenses they aren't they aren't bad lenses and they've held their value well which i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing with uh canon and the way they like to be kind of the lens value has been really nice for me um in in any given day if something changes i can sell off a lens and know that <laughs> i will get within 100 of whatever i paid for it uh, initially yep and that's a, a really nice thing and then even their old, old lenses, I have the 17 to 35 millimeter F2.8, which is, I think that lens is 10 or 12 years old now. It was previous to the 16 to 35 original, and they're on a Mark II. And that one still sells for four to $500 on eBay. And yeah. that lens is, I don't even think it's ultrasonic. I think it's using their original motor drive system from way, way back in the day. So, you know, if that's $500 still, <laughs> man, that red stripe really just makes things valuable. I threw one more thing here in the show notes for you, and I'm kind of like tricking you here because these weren't in when we started the show. But uh, (laughs) you're a Blackmagic shooter, so I thought you might know a little bit more about this. The Mm -hmm. Blackmagic release of Utility 2.0, what is this about? Uh, So Blackmagic Camera Utilities, uh, that's, I guess, what they call their firmware updater. Uh, What's kind of interesting is Blackmagic their firmware updates go across all products, even though their products are so different. So technically all their products are on the same firmware at the same time, I guess, in order to be updated, which is an interesting way of doing it because that's kind of how like programming works. When you program for multiple operating systems, you'll make sure that everyone's on the same revision kind of, even though they're all developing at different timelines. Yeah. Um, so here, I mean, the big thing is, is that it's adding uh, Apple ProRes uh, 4K uh, 444, which I've never been a fan of ProRes and 4K because I think that there's better ways to do 4K that aren't bloated as Apple ProRes. Oh, but it's so universal that, you know, you can't you can't knock it. So um, but for what they've got going on here, it's for people who have jumped on a little too early to their um I'm struggling for the name now. Oh, that that, uh, new big five different mounts. Yeah. Yeah. The PL mount, uh, the one that has that kind of it's a square pattern adapter that you just yank off the whole thing. I know what you're talking about. I'm actually staring at a picture of it right now (laughs) and it is escaping me for some reason. 
Right. But uh, I mean, I heard a lot of complaints about people. I have just uh, started to get interested in renting that for a project or two just to try it out, just to see how it does. So I haven't had it in my hands yet, but I've heard a few people complaining, being like, you know, we really thought this was going to be the end all. But like most Blackmagic products, it seems to come out before the software does. And hopefully this update here is going to kind of be that software that starts putting everything in its place the way it's supposed to be. Because let's face it, like the Pocket Cinema camera that touted RAW didn't have RAW for quite a while. Uh, You know, they're reducing prices. They're fixing problems with SD card compatibility and everything else. And now you look at the Blackmagic Pocket and besides the obvious physical limitations of the Blackmagic Pocket, like battery and audio... um, it's now super stable. It now works great. And the feature sets there and no one's really complaining anymore because they fixed everything. And if there's ever an example of a company who I guess you could say makes up for their mistakes or shortcomings, it's black magic because they continue to support and update products that are ancient. They're still making updates to the, uh, the old 2k that, you know, yeah, for the EOS mount and all that kind of stuff. They're still making updates for that camera and they are focused on trying to keep their entire product line up to date. But it's kind of hurt them a little bit because people remember and that's the first burned. thing I think about yeah. as soon as I think about Blackmagic is I'm like, oh, half-baked cameras, you know, here comes another <laughs> half-baked camera that has awesome specs and we'll actually see it working two years after it's, you know, been out on the market. And yep. that's my burn now. Like I, I personally played around with the uh, pocket camera for a couple weeks and immediately turned around and sent it back because I was like, man, this is not what I need. It's junk. And now it's stabilized and they fixed a bunch of stuff, but mm-hmm. I, they already lost no, me no, as a, a customer. No. And yep. so many other people are out there like, Oh man, uh, don't go with that because I had this horrible thing that happened to me because of it. And now it just leaves a bad taste in everybody's mouth. Sure. Sure. And there, you're right about that. But I think that uh, black magic is a, a, I can't say new company. They've been around for a long time, but new in the camera space. Uh, They're trying to innovate and they're trying to keep up with everyone else. And you can tell by their design that they're always experimenting and trying new things because they haven't found a winning solution that works. And they haven't found something that, you know, necessarily flies off the shelves, especially I know a lot of people, the big burn for a lot of people was buying that 2K camera and then it not showing up for a year and a half. Oh, man, that's a huge that's that really hurts your uh, your customers. But I think Blackmagic's trying to do everything they can to make up for it and get their company back on the right foot. I think they just bit off more than they could chew in the beginning and they're starting to catch up to speed. Um I'm really interested in this new oh it's called like a UAG or something, right? Whatever this black magic is. Yeah, I was it. trying to find the name of it while you were talking and <laughs> I'm just escaping me, so I was just kind of giving up on it. It they uh, basically that's, that's a marketing fail on black magic. Yeah, part. last uh, last year <laughs> they released a, a new version of their cinema line and then they released this 4K camera which has a bunch of adapters and it's a big like studio camera. The thing is the size of my forearm, and it's very large. <laughs> it has that weird flip-out screen that's on the side of the the body, and that's the one that is supposed oh, to be getting four foot four. There we go. Thank you. And that, that's a weird name, man. Yeah, <laughs> they're kind of falling <laughs> now, into that. That being said, that being said, and you have a good point with the Black Magic Pocket and the shortcomings of that, but I really have not heard any complaints about the Black Magic Studio cameras that they came out with. And those ones seem to be popular. People seem to be liking those, and they seem to look great. 
So there's a thing where I think that they hit the nail on the head and they found a place in the market where they could dominate because no one else is making studio cameras at that price with that kind of quality 6G SDI and color correction built in along with tally lights and everything else you need. Everyone can hack together something for that price, but it's not as good as buying a product built for that price. Yeah, and, and so what I think what is the retail like 6000 on those to 4000 depending on what type of mount you get. So that's pretty attractive. The, oh, absolutely. I think the PL mount is the more expensive version, but if you get it with an mm-hmm. EF mount or one of the other adapters, then it's a little bit lower in the price range. I might be wrong on that, guys. Somebody could price check that, but I want to uh, say four it's to the four HD to six. Two K. Okay. The HD is two thousand dollars, and if you want the four K, which is frankly what we all want, it's only three thousand dollars. Oh wow, it's only three thousand. <laughs> because it doesn't it doesn't record to anything you know it's a studio camera that just sends off the data so yeah. they've taken all those savings and just focused on making a quality product so it looks weird it's a bit odd and i know that for some people they're like i don't even know what to do with this it looks like how do i hold it it's like no you don't hold it it's a studio camera it's purpose built but it's a fantastic price and i haven't heard any complaints about people who've used it so i'm actually supposed to fly out to dallas here in a few weeks and actually go to a studio where they're building and putting these in so i'll have a better idea then but uh so so far, everyone's been saying, hey, great stuff, man. 12G SDI in the 4K one, you know. Yeah, that sounds like a good application for want. like a, um, a stationary moving camera in like a film or I mean in a, a newsroom or something like that where you're just moving stuff back and forth and doing switching. That sounds yeah. pretty sexy. Um, one other thing I was looking at this because you said bloated um, ProRes <laughs> and it looks like five hours uh, is one terabyte in 422 ProRes 4K. So... 422 yeah that's 422 (laughs) not 444 so yeah you're probably looking at more like three hours at one terabyte so yeah that is out of control right and it's (laughs) maybe i'm alone in this i don't feel like prices are driving down on storage yet at a quick enough pace because part of it is too is we need faster speed on our hard drives and we need more space and ssd just kind of seems to have stopped like now we're starting to get into rating ssds because us video guys go hey let's do 6k uh you know let's get more resolution it's like well ssds aren't exactly keeping up and then the space too they're kind of stuck at one terabyte no one's making two terabyte ssds well the write speeds right now are actually limited by sata standards uh true, when we move true. to the next sata standard uh we'll double or quadruple the write speeds i can't remember what the new spec is but most ssds that are released in the last year or so are able to saturate sata3 so that's i yeah. mean that's it. That's, that's where that's the, more of an industry thing. I know. It's, yeah, it's, and I know it's people that are working on um, a basically uh, plug-in sixteen uh, X. Um, damn it! What my brain is is failing. PCIe. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm like labeling all these letters here, and then PCIe yep. escapes me. But yeah, the PCIe SSDs they do make a, a two and a three terabyte flavors. I believe, even though OCZ kind of like disappeared and got bought by Toshiba. They are still putting out those flavors of SSDs, and they're in the two to three thousand dollar range. But they are able to um, saturate PCIe, which is much higher data rates, or not saturate, oh, yeah. but um, at least like utilize that. So where you're talking uh, one thousand meg up and down read and write speeds, and then of course mm-hmm. I think you and I were discussing this a few casts back about uh, possibly going to RAM disk. Uh, one of the things yeah. that Samsung did that was clever with theirs is they allowed 
for a software-enabled RAM disk that would pre-buffer writes and reads to your SSD to get you into the 800 to 900 meg read-write speeds as long as you weren't sustained writing for more than five or six gigs worth of data, it was able to clear that buffer out and feed it into the SSD and give you those virtual speeds that are a lot more sexy. Maybe right. we'll start seeing some sort of uh, PCIe-based uh, proprietary or you know, like uh, Panasonic's yeah. uh, P.2 or PS.2 cards. Maybe there'll be something wacky like that that will be in the next generation of cameras that'll give us the speed we need. Yeah, I mean, and but you know as well as I do that for editing burst speeds is not really uh, too relevant, except in a few applications where yeah. you're loading a lot of assets at once. I could see it being useful for visual effects, guys, but in video editing 6K footage and stuff like that, you need constant write speed, even if you're just previewing the timeline. That's what's important to you. So, But the application's there, and it may be something that holds people over until we can get everyone up to a new SATA standard and get the I.O. up to speed. Yeah, I hope the next round of motherboards and CPUs will support that much I.O. I I would like to see USB 3.1 implemented so yeah. that I can just have external storage <laughs> editing from now on and quickly carry my stuff around. All right, that was it for the news. Let's move on to the pick of the day. What do you got, man? Uh, you know what? I was I was actually going to point out that Tamron lens, but Oh shoot. <laughs> you kind I of totally added that bogarted to the that. That is quite all right. You know what? Uh, what's fantastic, if you don't have a lot of money, but you want some decent studio monitors, uh, the M-Audio BX5. I know they're only five inches, and some guys say it's all about size when it comes to audio. <laughs> uh, but it's. Uh, I think that they sound fantastic, especially when you get them properly elevated and lined up to your ears. I've been using them for about a year and a half now, and... Every time I listen to them, they sound fantastic. I need to add a subwoofer to the system because it is only, of course, five inches. But uh, I've been doing it for a lot of audio mixing, for a lot of dialogue work and stuff like that. Uh, you know, headphones are the cheaper choice if you're doing a lot of audio work. But you also want to hear what it's like in a room with acoustics and things like that and a proper monitor set. And the M-Audio, I've heard, you know, oh, it's M-Audio, whatever. But these came with great reviews. I tried them myself. I tried a few other ones. And honestly, they sounded as good as... Um, those uh what are they they're yellow they're got like rock in the name or something ken rock or something oh but anyways uh, kenwood, you mean uh, does kenwood make no no, no no there's like five inch monitors that are yellow. i forget what they are but i see them on everybody's desk because everyone swears by them and i did a blind listening test between the two pairs for the five inches and these m audios i went they sound exactly the same and the uh, m audios are cheaper i'll take those i've so. been using uh, uh the fostex uh d011 or d.011s and they're a five inch um powered speaker i don't know if the m audio are they self-powered or do you have to have an amp for them yeah they're self-powered a few people actually have a gripe about that because you individually power each one with an atx cable yeah uh, but for me i go eh, i'd rather have each one having it own amp and its own setup in each speaker because i like it that way yeah that part is a little bit frustrating because i was having trouble getting them to be balanced level wise but what <laughs> right? i ended up yeah. doing was just um cranking them all the way up and then reducing the <laughs> input which is not the, don't do that that's bad for the amplifier don't guys like they just they, they're like little heaters on my desk but it works <laughs> so i've just i was lazy and that's how i do it when i need yeah. something precision um hey, if you've got a great sound card yeah exactly <laughs> You know, I was, uh, I was, this is a side note. I was building a computer a couple weeks ago for a friend, just uh, grabbing some spare parts I had laying around. And I found an old 
audio card that I hadn't seen in a long time. It was the Sound Blaster Extreme, whatever. 24-bit yeah, extreme. 24-bit extreme, and it had, like, the dongle that attached via a DB9 jack and, like, gave you a bunch of extra connectors <laughs> and some MIDI input, yep. stuff like that. Man, we've come a long ways. Now most of the new motherboards have op-amp-driven audio sections on the board that are isolated from the rest of the motherboard and sound great. Yeah. You can upgrade the chips on them. We're living in a nice time for audio. I mean, you don't really have to have an expensive interface if you don't want to anymore. You can just go buy a three or $400 motherboard and you'll be in a good place. Yeah, and even then, uh, for me, I did notice when you start having good headphones and uh, good one, uh, monitors like the yeah. M-Audio BX5s, uh, you start needing to have uh, a little better of a sound card if you're running cheap on the motherboard. I only spent 200 bucks on my motherboard. My motherboard was on the cheap end, so there's a little bit of hiss. I ended up just for, I think, about 80 bucks. You can get sound cards now with built-in headphone amps that sound fantastic, yeah. as well as really clean lineouts for your speakers. So... That's definitely something to consider if you're looking at audio and you're mixing audio. And you should always still listen to it in your car, listen to it in your TV, try different speakers, try crappy iPod headphones just to make sure your mix is good. But to start off your mix, having clean audio does not cost that much money. And it is a fantastic time to be working with audio. Now, my pick of the week is actually uh, completely different and even cheaper. (laughs) I've got right in front of me right now is a short... Uh, less than a foot micro USB to USB adapter. These cables, if you buy them in bulk on Amazon or on Monoprice, they'll set you back about 89 cents. And in the old days, cell phones had multiple chargers, multiple connectors, all that kind of stuff, and it was a mess. But now it seems like micro USB is the way to go for everything. These are rated for two amps. You can charge pretty much any device you have. And they are extremely cheap, so you can lose them. You can leave them in friends' cars. You can throw them in your bag. I buy 10 to 15 of these at a time and then just leave them around. The wife grabs them, takes them to work. I don't know where they go. They just disappear. But (laughs) they are so cheap now that they become a consumable item. At $0.89, these micro USB cables are well worth investing in, especially if you have at least one cell phone in the house. Also, a lot of the newer electronics for camera gear and filmmaking, uh, for example, the Rhodes uh, wireless system that came out, they use micro USB ports to charge those. So it's something that you can actually use with your camera kit as well. And I, I, I think I can even power the Metabones adapter via micro USB. I haven't actually tried it yet, but there is it a micro a mini. Are you sure it's not a mini? It might sure be a, a mini. No, you're right. I no, thought it was a, right. micro, a micro, but... Because mini is the kind of B-shaped one or the D-shaped one, right? Or it's like a little bit fatter. And the micro is that really thin. And the micro is what cell phones use, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I I believe it's a micro. I'd have to go check. But um, the new Rode wireless system uses that. A couple of other uh, pieces of kit that I have in my setup use that. There's adapters that you can, can go from that to another power source. And in fact, I'll probably throw a link in the show notes. If you guys go on ebay and you type in a usb power converter they sell a chip and the chip is like five dollars or three dollars it's really cheap it'll take anywhere from three to 18 volts on the input and convert it to usb power at up to one amp output so if you have a bunch of usb devices on your rig say it's audio gear your camera for example the sony 
A7S is powered by, you can power it via the micro USB port by just simply inputting power. You can use one of those adapters, adapt any power source you want. That includes cheap laptop batteries, any kind of lithium ion battery, and you just plug it in and the converter converts the power to a five volt source for USB components. You'll probably have to wrap it in epoxy or something like that and look for a (laughs) tutorial on that whenever I get time to do it. But those things are super cheap. So if you're looking for some kind of rig-based power system, especially for the A7S or any of these other micro USB power Mm -hmm. devices, that's definitely something to consider. Uh, Do you know if the GH4, I I don't have it in front of me right now. Do you remember if that is micro USB? And if so, can you power it from that port? No. No. (laughs) Yeah, that's escaping me too. There's, as far as I know, there's... uh, no built-in power port. You have to use an adapter, and then the adapter, I think, is supposed to run at 7.4 volts like the battery does, if okay. I recall. Yeah. That- as far as I know for external power, I had uh, I had somebody sent some guy in a studio. He's like, here, I'll send you a 4K camera. He sent me a GH4 without a power adapter. He's like, <laughs> what do I do after, like, two hours? He's like, oh, just take a break and charge it. <laughs> that's not how you run a studio. No. Man, <laughs> at least get a dummy battery and stick it in there. And that's the other yeah. thing with these those adapters. Um, a lot of the dummy battery systems, you can buy a dummy battery for uh, Canon for the GH4 for whatever. And it's just the battery with the cable coming out of it, and you can plug it into those battery packs as well. So, it, and even some gold mount adapters, as well as the gold mount batteries themselves, now started coming with USB ports that oh, at least do provide they? an amp or two. Yeah, I've seen some with like an amp or two okay. on a five volt line that they pump out USB plug. Just so, hey, do you have something that you need to charge? You know, probably not your phone, but some piece of audio equipment that uses micro USB, plug it in. So I've seen that on a few, I mean, the cheaper, the Chinese stuff. I've seen that on a few cheaper Chinese products, but still that option's out there too. I've seen power packs that actually provide USB ports. Yeah. And if you're doing like time-lapse with the GoPro or something like that, having a battery pack like that to power it is also pretty, pretty handy. You can really extend the life from what? 29 and a half minutes, Jesus GoPro, (laughs) to something that's reasonable. I know they claim yeah. an hour, man, but I've never gotten more than like 45 minutes out of a GoPro battery. I don't care what milliamp hour rating they tell you. But on that note, uh, this has been another exciting episode <laughs> of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin, where can people find you? Uh, people can find me at impulsenetworks.tv. All right, guys. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>